Happy Saturday. It's May 7th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley. We? Happy Mother's Day. Oh, God, thanks. Happy Mother's Day to Barbara. And happy Mother's Day to Kathy and to all the mothers out there this weekend. Here in America, it is Mother's Day, so don't forget to call. Don't forget to call. If you need me, I'll be drinking wine and pampering myself at various spas all around the city and not seeing my family. Just kidding. My mom is here this year, and it's lovely to celebrate with my own mother and I suppose my kids as well. And thank you to my parents for taking my kids to a baseball game so I can enjoy a little downtime. And you deserve it. I do deserve it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Mother's Day more than pretty much anybody else out there. But this whole notion of like me time and personal time and I deserve a time, like it does get a little bit tiresome. Like I don't think my mother in the entirety of the time I was living at home, I don't think my mother ever once said like, I need some time to myself. And it's something that I say to my kids every day and I'm sure that they're going to hate me for it forever. I really can't picture Kathy walking around with a t-shirt that says it's mommy time or mommy needs her medicine, her juice right now, her mommy juice. I don't see that, but it was a different time. I also rail against the whole idea of mommy juice. Like, I like wine, but for some reason, like, the branding of it is as mommy juice, like, has turned me off of wine. Oh, completely. I guess I should become a cocktail person. The point is, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Thank you very much. And happy Kentucky Derby Day. Go and put some money down and maybe you'll win something. I don't know. Hooray! Okay, cool. All right, let's get out the hat and that. What's the drink that everybody drinks? The mint julep, Ashley. Come on. Oh, mint julep. Okay, well, it's been a quite a week of news. I don't even know what to make of it, but I'm hoping that you can help. You can talk some sense into me. You know, it's very bizarre. Like, I haven't thought about Marilyn Monroe in quite some time, and all of a sudden, she's not over all over this issue. But her dress was all over the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Kim Kardashian. Explain this. Like, I don't know if this was intentional on the part of Kim or not, but on Monday night at the Met Gala, Kim. Kardashian wore a dress that Marilyn Monroe had made famous in the 60s. It was a gold sequined sheath, and she wore it when she sang Happy Birthday to President John F. Kennedy. And interestingly enough, her timing was serendipitous because we have the most valuable work of contemporary art coming up at auction this week at Christie's, and it is Andy Warhol's Sage Shot Marilyn. And we have a great story in the issue about the genesis of this piece of artwork. Michael, tell us all about it. About it. Okay. So this is a story this week by Stephen Murphy, who looks at Andy Warhol's 1964 painting of the actress, and it's set to become perhaps the world's most valuable work of contemporary art. Andy Warhol's Shot Sage Marilyn is coming to auction at Christie's in May, and it's estimated to sell at or above $200 million, which would, as I said, make it the world's most valuable work of contemporary art. What is it about this painting, the artist's subject that places it in this highest auction league, which puts it right up there with Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi? and Picasso's La Femmes d'Algerie. Well, on the morning of August 6, 1962, Warhol's 30th birthday, uh, the world awoke to the news of Monroe's death and Warhol immediately set to work painting her, choosing for his image a publicity still from her film Niagara. And just three months later at the Stable Gallery, which was his first significant New York exhibition, this same image of Marilyn in various silkscreen palettes and sizes, comprised more than half of 
the show, which was a triumph. It sold out, but the exhibition was more than a commercial success. Warhol's work was immediately celebrated and embraced by the good and the great of American art society. It was really sort of like the show that kicked off his career. Basically, in short, these 1964 canvases became the, quote, holy grail of Warhol. All right. Well, speaking of big money and big talent, we have a really interesting story in the issue about the revolt happening at Goldman Sachs. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I love this story because I love when millennials and Gen Zers rise up against their corporate bosses. And in this case, David Solomon, who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs, issued a back-to-work order. And it's saying you've got to be back in the office five and even seven days a week for these young analysts. But they are up in arms. Here's a guy, David Solomon, who's making truckloads of money, but also has time to DJ Lollapalooza. So there's a little bit of a culture class and a generational clash. Yes. Okay, you had me at DJ Lollapalooza. This guy, like, generally I don't look at CEOs of investment banks and think, fascinating guy. I'm sure they all are and brilliant and smart, but like, this is a guy I want to sit next to at a dinner party and I'll tell you why. Because in addition to being a very well-regarded banker, he also has a passion for music and not just any music, electronic music. And he is a fairly well-known DJ on that circuit called DJ Diesel. DJ Diesel has played many gigs, including an upcoming one at Lollapalooza. But I think what's jarring and annoying the next generation of bankers is that this guy is able to trot off all around the world to like spin his turntables while he's forcing the junior set to be tethered to their desks at the Goldman Sachs headquarters around the world. So I think there's some optics at play here, but we have Bill Cohan and he is here to tell us all about what's going on at Goldman. Let's call this story Two Turntables and the Goldman Sachs Revolt. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, Michael, here to talk about the traumas and travails of returning to work, we've got Bill Cohan. Not only is he a former investment banker for some of the best banks in town, like Lazard and J.P. Morgan Chase, but he also was a founding partner at Puck, a beloved editor-at-large here at Airmail Weekly, and as Scott Galloway says, a blue flame thinker. And that is a compliment from Scott. So welcome, Bill, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back, guys. Glad to be here. Bill, you have chronicled a lot of interesting characters in the world of finance. What makes David Solomon stand out? Hmm. That's a good question, Ashley. You know, on the one hand, like fits the mold of the Goldman CEO to a T because like all of his white male predecessors pretty much is follically challenged and proud and out there about it in that way that some guys are who they're just like bald and proud. And that's David. So that's number one. Some of the things that make him uh, different is that he's the first non-homegrown Goldman CEO in 100 years. Then in 1999, joined Goldman Sachs, I believe, right after it went public. So he missed out on the big bonanza. A number of top M&A advisors in particular joined Goldman Sachs before the May 1999 IPO, but David joined after. And so he's very well compensated. We don't have to feel sorry for him, but he did miss out on that IPO bonanza. So despite not being a homegrown player, despite not having Goldman Sachs in his DNA, 
he was able to effectively navigate the Kremlin-like architecture of Goldman Sachs, which is amazingly, to his credit, that could never have been an easy thing to navigate. So that's sort of his story of how he got to the top, overcoming people who sort of shot themselves in the foot, like Gary Cohn, who made a play to succeed Lloyd Blankfein when he was number two and Lloyd was number one, and that failed. And then Gary got his sinecure uh, working for Donald Trump, paving the way pretty much for David Solomon, who bested Harvey Schwartz. All those other two guys, by the way, were, of course, follically challenged, so they were had an equally chance of getting the job. And since David has been the CEO, I would say, first of all, last year, Goldman had made $21 billion of profit. That was the most profitable year ever. So nobody can quibble really with the way he's been running the place, although, of course, people do. So he's an outsider who's come in, strategized his way to the top. But it seems, as you now say in your story this week, that maybe because he's not of that culture, he's created a bit of a culture war inside Goldman Sachs. And he's now sort of touched off a war inside, as you note, between the kind of millennial and Gen Z bankers with his return to work order, right? This office culture, which has been around for hundreds of years now of five, even seven days a week at the office. And they're now in essentially open revolt, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know how, quote unquote, open it is. I'm sure there's frustration. There's clearly frustration, and it's showing up in anonymous message boards like Blind. It showed up in that anonymous PowerPoint presentation that surfaced last year that a lot of people wrote about. So on the one hand, I'm a firm believer that Wall Street and certain aspects of investment banking like M&A advisory or client management, learning how to do deals, learning how to do underwriting, et cetera. Those are apprenticeship businesses. You have to learn from the Jedi masters over a fairly long period of time how to do those things. And you can't do it over Zoom. You just can't do it over Zoom. It can be done because, you know, last year was like a record year as we were talking about. So like the senior people can do it. They can work with their clients and they can get deals done, as we saw, which to some extent was surprising, but they did it. But that's different than junior people learning the craft. And so to really learn the craft so that you can be long-term greedy, which is, of course, a Goldman Sachs mantra, those guys, those Gen Xers or Gen Zers, whatever the heck they are, should want to be back in the office. Now, there are some mitigating factors about that. First of all, it's just kind of easier if you're going to be working all the time anyway, you know, or 18 hours a day, just to work at home in your joggers and your t-shirt without having to get yourself from home to 200 West Street. So that's number one. And they've grown accustomed to that. And it's hard sort of for Goldman to argue the other side of that because they had a record year last year. It's not like saying, well, because I work from home, you guys didn't do well. We couldn't do well. Well, we had a record year and I work from home. So what are you trying to say to me? That's number one. Number two is basically these analysts who come out of college and then go to work for Goldman Sachs, even like within the first weeks of them getting there, they're already being recruited away by private equity firms. So they have this very short-term horizon anyway. And it's sort of like, oh, you won't let me do what I want. You won't let me work from home. Then kind of F you, I'm going to go to Blackstone or I'm going to go to TPG or I'm going to go to Carlisle who want me and are just raring to have me go. And so that's number two. And number three, that's a kind of a real head scratcher is so they had these various perks that they had available to the junior bankers during COVID, like car rides, paid car rides to and from the office, breakfast and lunch, and then dinner if they stay a certain time. 
uh, free coffee or whatever. And here they have this record year, $21 billion. The top guys are paying themselves a huge amounts of money. And of course, not, but not like hedge fund guys or private equity guys. And then they're cutting out those perks. So the combination of all those things has probably got a certain number of vocal junior people up in their fields and wanting to express themselves and going quote unquote public on anonymous message boards that of course we love to read and absorb. Look, if you don't care about your career in this business and you're just like short timing it to get the credential, to get to Google, to get to Amazon, to get to Blackstone, then fine, just do what you're doing and do what you want. But if you would actually like to have a long-term career in this, you know, and when I was a banker, to be an M&A banker at Lazard or Merrill Lynch or JP Morgan Chase, I mean, that was like sort of the pinnacle. So you couldn't really go to a private equity firm or a hedge fund or there was no Google. So that was the highest and best use. So you were trying to maximize your chances to have a long-term career. And so you wanted to learn, you know, you wanted to be part of the big deals. You wanted to see these guys, mostly guys, some women in action. And it was kind of thrilling, although they can be completely mercurial and out of control. So if you want to have a real career on Wall Street, and like not everybody does, and it's not for everybody, but if you do, then you got to want to be in the office to absorb this special sauce, this learning, this unusual. It just it's not like putting rivets in a car on an assembly line. It's, it's just not. It's really an apprenticeship business. Well, and again, that context against it is, is you've got Solomon, CEO, who is got his part-time gig as DJ Saul, DJing. He's going to be at Lollapalooza this summer. And you've got these younger bankers who are there, who, as you point out, let's just, since it's Wall Street, we'll use some numbers. It's harder to get an entry-level job at Goldman than it is to crack Harvard. As you say, the acceptance rate at Harvard is just over 3%. The acceptance rate at Goldman to get an internship there is 1.5%. So incredibly difficult to get in, but you say they're going to get lured away most likely. But this is not a minor skirmish, right? I mean, Solomon is drawn a line in the sand. He wants these guys and women back. And yet there they are taking to blind, as you say, saying it's a quote unquote work culture, which for those of us of a certain generation, like it's the office life. Like, what are you talking about? What do you expect? <laughs> exactly. And yet these guys, these young analysts that make $200,000 to as a base and maybe $100,000 in bonus. And then they're probably looking at guys like Solomon, who, as you note, his total compensation last year was $35 million. So Plus an extra $30 million bonus stock bonus that they gave him too. How do you see this playing out? This is just another entry into the general sort of culture wars that we've seen for the last decade or so. I mean, these guys get paid a tremendous amount of money. They work their asses off. I'm talking about the junior people. I mean, they're really, I mean, you wouldn't want to do it unless you really wanted to do it. I mean, they make a lot of money. They don't really have social lives. They're working around the clock, especially if Goldman has his best year ever, in 2021, that means that the people at the bottom of the pyramid are working very, very hard. And then they see the guys at the top DJing and getting paid $65 million and ordering them back to work and taking away their perks. So as you point out, Michael, they're replaceable. I mean, there's like a long line of people who would be more than happy to take those jobs. I think that this whole thing, I think, well, the management is going to win. Number one, that is clear to me because it's the right outcome for the business. In other words, 
people need to be in the office. I do agree with David Solomon on that. So management's going to win because that's the right answer. And then when a recession, inevitable recession comes, as we're now sort of staring down the grips of, and the employment rate, unemployment rate starts to rise, then I think a lot of the boldness that you're seeing on some of these anonymous platforms is going to fade away and people will just be saying, you know what, I'm lucky I have this job. I'm just going to put my head down and get back to work. This is like a bull market, a fin de siècle, end of the Gilded Age, the fifth Gilded Age kind of behavior, if you ask me. I mean, back when I was a banker, you put your head down, you did what you were told. I mean, you know, more power to them for trying to improve their lot, but they get paid a tremendous amount of money for taking no financial risk, for taking no risk of the capital. And you can't do that anywhere else but in these kinds of jobs. So be fortunate for what you have and either get the hell out of there because you got recruited away or just be thankful for what you have and do the best job you can. I love it. It's a fascinating culture war playing out among the 0.001 percenters. And I just love your context where, Bill, it's like the generational warfare comes even for the most conservative ramparts of society. On that note... Mm, happy new. All right, Bill. Bill, more soon from you. Yeah, okay. Can't get enough. Get back to solving the problems of the world. We'll see you back on Morning Meeting okay. and in the pixels of airmail very soon. Great. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks so much, Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Have well, a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Ashley, speaking of the rich and wealthy and people with more money than they know what to do with, Tom Wolfe had a phrase about the sort of thin and rich women back in the bonfire of the vanity days. He called them social x-rays, women who were always seeking to sort of stay impossibly thin, always looking for the next way to do that. And you have a story this week by Hannah Seligson, which sort of puts its finger on the latest hot new trend in weight loss among the 0.01 percenters. All right. So I heard about this drug called Wagovi from a friend of mine who's a doctor at New York Hospital. And he told me it's really a miracle drug. It's a big news. It's very big news in medical fields. And it's popular because it helps you lose weight. You don't have to do all that much except give yourself a shot once a week. So Hannah Selgson, one of our writers and reporters, looked into this for us. And she came up with some really fascinating stuff. So we have Hannah here to tell us all about Wagovi, the new weight loss wonder drug. Welcome, Hannah Seligson. So, Michael, you and I obviously would never want to change anything about ourselves, but the American obsession with diets and weight loss continues apace. And there is a fascinating new trend of injectables, doctor prescribed, that Hannah Seligson has investigated for us in the issue this week. Uh, Hannah is a wonderful journalist and reporter who's covered a wide variety of topics for the likes of the New York Times, Town and Country, and of course, Airmail. And we are thrilled to have Hannah with us today to talk all about the wonderful weight loss shot. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you, Ashley. Thrilled to be here. Okay, so Hannah, last summer, a drug was approved by the FDA for weight loss, and it didn't get a lot of news. Tell us about why you think that might be and what exactly this drug does. Right. So I think, understandably, it was overshadowed by news of the COVID vaccines, which overtook, I think, any other medical developments that were happening. And this new weight loss drug is called Wagovi, and it is a tiny little needle that people self-inject once a week. And the reason that so many of the doctors that I spoke to are excited about it is because it outperforms many of the other weight loss drugs, or anti-obesity drugs, I should say, in their class. Many of the other anti-obesity drugs, people lose between 
five, maybe 10% of their baseline body weight. And with Wagovi, physicians are seeing up to a 15% weight loss, just to give a sense of comparison with bariatric surgery, which is obviously surgery at a much more involved procedure, people can lose up to 20%. So this is edging into the arena of what people lose through actual surgery. And I mean, I want this. Everyone I know wants this, but how do you get it? <laughs> so that is, there are two problems with Wagovi. One is the supply and one is the price. So first of all, you have to qualify. You have to have a certain BMI or have certain comorbidities like at risk for diabetes or high blood pressure. And then you have to be able to pay for it. Not all insurance covers it. It's quite expensive. Some insurance will cover it. But I did find an interesting workaround that a doctor told me about. Should I go on? Uh, Yes, please. Okay. So Wagovi is actually the same drug as Ozempic. Anybody who watches a lot of MSNBC has probably seen Ozempic ads, right? And one way is Ozempic is a drug to treat diabetes, but Wagovi is really just Ozempic at a higher dose. So one of my sources who did not want to go on the record was already on Ozempic. And so she qualified to have her dosage of Ozempic increased and voila, she was on Wagovi. Okay, sign me up. And exactly, like, what does it feel like when you're on this drug? Are you able to eat everything you want? Like, what's the protocol, really? So the the people I spoke to described as, you know, it's, it's an appetite suppressant. What happens is that it's working on a certain hormonal system in your body telling you that you're full. One of the sources said to me that if you eat too much, you will throw up. The other woman who had gone on it, who had gone on the extra dose of Ozempic said that like she eats nothing. But I think really what it is, it's more about how much you're eating than what you're eating. Now, of course, if you're eating McDonald's every day and a milkshake, I mean, it's the the study, the effectiveness of the drug was done in a study where people were having mostly healthy eating habits defined broadly as 80% of the time and exercising, but it's really about portion control here. Ugh, what a bummer. Okay, guess you know. <laughs> well, you can just have a smaller milkshake. I mean, no, I mean, but people don't have to radically sort of change what they're actually eating. It's more just about the portion size. And this is a real game changer, right? Because it seems like it has the effects that are, if not exactly like those of bariatric surgery, they kind of approximate it, right? Or at least to some level. Sure. And what I think is so interesting about this anti-obesity drug is that it's changing the conversation. For so long, obesity has been framed as a lifestyle issue. Oh, just eat less and exercise more. But really, this is a disease and it cannot just be treated for many, many people through diet and exercise and they need a little help. And I think for a long time, as one of the doctors I spoke to said, anti-drugs have gotten a bad rap that somehow you can't do it on your own. You lack willpower. And that's just not true because the body is always, as these doctors explained to me, fighting it wants to gain weight. (laughs) And I know that's a very depressing thing to say out loud, but it's true. And the exciting thing here is that people can get ahead of it before they get all these comorbidities that go with obesity. And that sometimes we just do need a little help. And thank God we live in the modern medical era where they can get it. Michael, I love that we have some positive news here on Morning Meeting. This is great. Yes, I've just been listening to you. So is this, as you note in your story, a 30-day prescription would cost between $1,500 and $2,000, right? My question is, if someone starts this 
round of treatment. Is this a forever drug or is this sort of like use as needed, get your weight down and then try and settle back into uh, better eating habits? Or is this something, because as you point out, also at its current price, if you did it for 20 years, you'd be up over $300,000 in outlay. So is it one or the other or is it somewhere in between? Right. And so that the 30-day prescriptions of your insurance does not cover it. So there will be people for whom they'll take Bogovi for their whole life because when they stop taking it, I mean, it will stop triggering that hormonal system in their body telling them that they're full. The person that I interviewed, Beth Rubit, she had been eating healthy and doing all the right things, but her weight just kept creeping up. And that was no sort of fault of her own. She was doing, quote unquote, everything right and exercising willpower. So for many people, Bogovi will be a lifelong drug. All right. Fascinating. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. This is such an interesting subject and we love you and we love your reporting. So it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Can't be too rich, too thin, you know, or too much, have too much Wigovi. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Speaking of, now that we figured out a way to keep you out of the office and, you know, get you down 20 pounds... Well, let's also come up with some vacation plans for our readers. We have Marcia DeSanctis who trotted off to Ireland and checked into the Shelburne Hotel there, which has just undergone a renovation. And I have to say, I was really charmed by this story. I want to go over there right now. I haven't been to Ireland forever. Have you ever been to Dublin? I have been to Dublin. I've been all over Ireland. It's fantastic. Yeah, let's go back. Well, the Shelburne is a beautiful hotel that just was recently renovated. And there was a lot of fascinating history that took place there over the years. And Marcia writes about it in this week's issue. But if you're looking for a summer vacation destination, it's a little off the beaten path and highly recommended. And Ireland's really wonderful in the summer. It stays light until like 11 o'clock at night. The temperature is fantastic and can't beat it. Michael, what else do we have in the issue that we want to talk about? Well, if you're going to go to Ireland this summer, I would say take a quick jaunt across the sea there over to London because John Lahr has a review this week of a new play that is lighting up London's West End. It's called The 47th at London's Old Vic Theatre, and it is by the playwright Mike Bartlett, and he puts a Shakespearean sort of overlay. He wrote the very successful play King Charles III. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it imagined what Charles reign would be like when he becomes king. But here he has Bertie Carvel, the actor, in a barnstorming embodiment of Trump, who is contemplating the unsettling prospect of his second run for the Oval Office in 2024. As I said, John Lahr points out that Bartlett sort of framed this contemporary story as a Shakespearean history play, and he's turning in a masterful performance in London. So let's hope it maybe comes to the U.S. as well. Really exciting. Speaking of theatricality, it is almost the weekend. What do you got to recommend? Have you seen Hacks? Wait, the first season? Yeah, I watched the first season. We talked about it. The second season is coming out, yeah. It is? Is it here? It's not here yet, but the trailer came out last week. So Hacks is this incredible series on HBO Max that stars Gene Smart as a comedian, right? Like just a, like one of these like totally acerbic hysterical comics. And it stars her alongside a young writer named Eva, who has had a career implosion and been forced to come to Las Vegas and work with her and write jokes for her. And the two have this contentious, but also like quite loving relationship. Anyway, I thought the first season was so smart and entertaining and funny and just beautifully written, like nothing but like accolades for the show. Anyway, season two is coming back in May. Thank God we have something to look forward to. It won a ton of Emmys and rightfully so. So I look really forward to seeing what these great writers and actors are going to bring to us now. Okay, what about you? And it's a highly enjoyable little film called Operation Mince Meat. 
which is in select theaters right now and coming to Netflix next week. Set in England during World War II, it is less about daring do on the battlefield and more about the war at home and the stiff upper lip chaps and women who helped win it. Technically, it stars Colin Firth as a British intelligence officer who oversees a true and secret plan to fool Hitler about the impending Allied invasion of Sicily. But the real treat of the movie, which is based on Ben McIntyre's page-turner, is Johnny Flynn, who plays a young Ian Fleming, the originator of the crazy scheme in real life, shots of Flynn quietly typing away on what we presume are notes for his future James Bond novels, gives you a bit of a wink in a film that is a crisp, taut drama that's a lot of fun. Operation Mincemeat in theaters right now and Netflix next week. And also, actually, speaking of, I don't know, fame and fortune, there are two people who died this week I want to sort of note as a co-great lives moment. The first is a woman who many people may not know, but she was, her name was Regine. She died this week and she was the creator of the world's first disco, believe it or not. She was born in Belgium, abandoned in infancy by her unwed mother. She was arrested by the Nazis in France, hid in a convent. But in 1957, she reinvented herself. She dubbed herself Regine and she borrowed money, opened a basement nightclub on a Paris back street. And her great innovation was she realized when the jukebox stopped, you could hear noise in the bar. So she had the brilliant idea, she told the BBC later, that she didn't want to kill the atmosphere anymore. So instead, she installed two turntables, just like DJ Solomon of Goldman Sachs, and there was no gap in the music. And so it was the first ever discotheque, and she became the club's first disc jockey. But this began what was known as Chez Regine, which is widely regarded as the world's first discotheque in the 70s. She had more than 23 clubs across Europe, the Middle East, and the Americas, and an empire of $500 million. It was the hottest club in the world, later sort of supplanted by Studio 54, but fascinating woman, which she also kind of intersects with another person who came of note in the 80s who died this week, which was this celebrity-hounding photographer, Ron Galella. And if you don't know of Ron Galella, you surely know his images. Probably one of the most famous is what's known as the Windblown Jackie, a photograph that he captured of Jackie Onassis in 1970 or 71, walking down Madison Park Avenue there with her head sort of taking a stern look at him and her, the hair blowing around her face in a beautiful moment. Glella, he sort of presaged this world we live in, which is years before People Magazine came along or TMZ or all the paparazzi. He was the guy who was doing this in the 70s, for better or for worse. And he was hated by many of his subjects. Very famously, Marlon Brando once took a swing at him punched him in the jaw, knocked out five of his teeth. There's a photograph later of Galella still following him and wearing a football helmet. But he lived to see his work sort of transcend this sort of paparazzi world to becoming collectible art. Even the Museum of Modern Art now owns five of his works. But if you've never seen any of his pieces, just Google Ron Galella and you'll see these fantastic images from the 70s and 80s, everyone from, like I say, Jackie to Mick Jagger to Elvis and all the way through up into the 2000s. So two great lives this week. Those are wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Well, Michael, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Please read us out.
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks for joining us.